Snuff production. Emma Carey says that she wasn't a particularly positive person before her accident. She was working in a job that she didn't really like, going through the motions of life without a lot of spark or ambition. While not wanting to take away from the seriousness of her experience and the pain and anguish of her recovery, Emma says her life has changed for the better. She has gained an appreciation for what it means to be alive. Emma is now 29 years old and it's been almost a decade since she literally fell 15,000 feet from the sky and survived. Within what she's been through and what Emma has discovered along the way are lessons for all of us. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But first, here is my conversation with Emma Carey. Emma Carey, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Congratulations on your memoir, The Girl Who Fell From The Sky. It's a big thing to write a book. Honestly, until it came out, which was three weeks ago, I truly didn't believe it would actually happen. I start a lot of things in life and I don't always finish them. So even though it's something I always wanted to do, it's just the real to me that it's actually here and it's out in the world and I actually finished it. (laughs) Yeah, honestly, congratulations because I'll write a book one day is something that a lot of people like to say and very few people actually do. Yeah. So I, and it had been on my every, every new year, I would write my resolutions and it would always be write the book, write the book, never did it. Yeah. And so I'm so glad I finally put it all down and it came together. So for those who aren't familiar with you and your story, tell us about that title and the story that got you to that title. Yeah. So The Girl Who Fell From The Sky, very, um, just really explains what happens. <laughs> I was in a skydiving accident, so I fell from the sky. Uh, when I was 20, so nine years ago now, and I, upon landing, broke my back and became a paraplegic. And the story is about my emotional and mental journey recovering from that. Also, I touched on, so I can now walk again. I'm very lucky to have regained a lot of movement, but I didn't want to focus too much on the physical side of the recovery because I feel that that was predominantly out of my control, but what I could control was how I handled it mentally. And I feel I grew a lot through that journey. So that's what I focused on. That is an incredibly succinct summary that's led me to about a thousand not very (laughs) succinct questions. (laughs) Hit me. Let's go back in time a little bit. It's 2013. How, How old are you at that point? I was 20. And I had decided to go on like a, it wasn't my gap year, but I decided to work a few years after school to save up for this holiday. I didn't know how long it would be, Um, but I was very much in that, I don't know what I'm doing, stage of life, very young, very carefree, just traveling the world. You were a Canberra kid, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I lived in Canberra my whole life until I was 21. I moved away. So you and your actual best friend, Gemma, leave Canberra on this sort of 20 something adventure, there is no world where the idea of skydiving would be appealing to me. Were you a daredevil kind of person? It sounds so dumb now, but I truly didn't give it any thought. Like being that age, I wasn't like, oh, this is dangerous. I just thought, here we go. Let's do it. It just, the danger did not cross my mind, which in hindsight probably should have. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I, I just loved that kind of thing. I loved uh, feeling the adrenaline rush. I loved doing things that were new that I hadn't done before. And this was definitely something new. If you feel comfortable, can you tell me about what you remember of the fall and then and then hitting the ground? Yeah, well, I remember all of it because I was conscious for the entire fall and wow. when I landed and all the way to hospital, I was conscious until I went into surgery. So during the free fall, before anything went wrong, I remember feeling like I loved it so much. It just felt so bringing and I just felt so, I don't know, I felt like I was doing exactly what I was supposed to do. And I remember even thinking, I'm going to become a skydiver. That's how much I love it, which I'm sure a lot of people think of the skydiving. But then I felt a tap on my shoulder, which is from the instructor uh, to tell you to cross your arms over your chest because the parachute's about to be pulled. So I did that, but I didn't feel a slowdown. And because I'd never done it before, I didn't really know what it was meant to feel like. I didn't know what to expect. But I, I was yelling out to the instructor to say, is everything okay? And he wasn't responding. But again, I thought maybe he just can't hear me over the sound of the wind. And so I waited for more time to go on. And this would have been like seconds, you know what I mean? It, it all happened so fast. And then I saw a red parachute tangled up in front of me as opposed to above me and open. And that's when I knew for sure that something was definitely wrong. And so I was convinced that we were about to die. I didn't think it was possible to survive something like that. I could feel the speed with which we were going. I could see the ground getting so close so fast. And I thought that was it. But when we hit the ground, I somehow didn't die. But what I did find was that when I tried to, uh, to get up to go and search for help, I was completely paralyzed from the waist down. I couldn't, I couldn't move my legs at all. I couldn't wriggle my toes. I couldn't even use my abs to roll over. And that was just terrifying. And most of all, confusing Mm. from being able to do something for 20 whole years of my life without a second thought to then trying to do that exact same action and it not working. It was just very, yeah, very scary. You tell that story with such a sort of steady candor like I feel like my whole body is covered in in um, goosebumps listening to that um how far would you have fallen I don't know I think it's like around a thousand feet I don't know precisely but far (laughs) so what happens at that point someone calls an ambulance to take you to the hospital yeah so Gemma who had jumped after me her she didn't see that anything was wrong but her instructor must have because he followed us down to land where we were, which we were in the Swiss Alps and we landed in a place where we were not supposed to land. So thankfully they came to us and then they were able to call um, the emergency services. And I remember the police arrived first and then an ambulance and then the paramedics took one look at us and were like, no, we're going to need the helicopter. (laughs) So they called for the rescue helicopter and then we went to hospital. What happened to your instructor? Uh, so he survived. I don't know how we both survived, wow. but he shattered both of his legs and had to have surgeries on his leg. But I think he's okay now. So when you think back to your sort of your mental and emotional state once you're at the hospital and it's starting to sink in, though I imagine adrenaline still racing through mm-hmm. your body, what did you expect was going to happen? Did you have any kind of expectation? 
Um, well, I think for the first few days, I was just still in shock. And even though I knew yeah. what was happening was serious, I didn't know how lifelong and how life-altering it would be. Mm-hmm. Still in my head, even though logically I knew it wasn't true, I thought, I'm still going to Rome tomorrow. I'm still going to complete this trip that I'm on. Life will still go on as normal. And obviously that wasn't the case, but it's it's amazing how how long it can take your mind to wrap itself around this entirely new reality that was so unexpected. This is a really big question and I, I almost don't want to a- ask it, but I'm too curious. Do you think it's changed your mindset and sort of outlook on, on what life is about? Can you see a shift between, because I know ageing and maturity is happening there too, so it might be hard to untangle, but do you have a sense of how you see the world and how you think about life really changing? Yeah, definitely. Like in my mind, there's a very distinct before and after that moment, the way that I saw the world, the way that I saw myself. And as I've gotten older and gone through my 20s, I feel changes would have happened naturally, but it was a very instantaneous change. And something that I think changed my perspective a lot was the fact that I was conscious for the fall because I have that very vivid and painful memory of genuinely thinking I only had 10 seconds left to live. And in that moment, I realized just how much I wanted to live, which seems really obvious, but I'd never stopped about that before. I just took everything for granted. And so even though things were difficult in hospital and I was now paralyzed and dealing with all these things that were, that were really hard, I felt just so lucky to be alive because I knew it very easily could have gone the other way. You mentioned earlier that the book focuses more on your mental and emotional recovery than it does on on your physical recovery. Yeah. So let's come back to the physical recovery. Tell me about the process, I suppose, of coming to the attitude that that you clearly now have because it sings out of your voice and your presence. Um, You feel like very much a very positive, optimistic person. Imagine that took time and work to get to. Yeah. uh, For the first few weeks in hospital, I was on so many painkillers, so my mind was so hazy. And then I think once they wore off a little bit and I was able to think clearer, I just had this really big epiphany moment one day while I was still in Switzerland. And I just remember thinking, okay, what has happened has happened. And as much as I wish it didn't, I, as much as I wish that life had gone another way and I could still be carefree, oblivious to this whole hospital world, there's nothing I can do to take it back. So I can either be paralyzed and miserable and constantly live wishing for something else, or I can be paralyzed and see what kind of life I can create regardless of that. And a few months later, when I was in the Australian hospital in the spinal ward, I had another moment which really shifted my perspective. And it was when I was talking to a patient who had had his injury maybe two years earlier and he was Mm -hmm. uh, in a wheelchair and he said just in passing conversation, I'll never be happy unless I can walk again. And up until that moment, I think I'd subconsciously felt the same because in physio it seemed like that's what we were striving for every day to get back on our feet. And at that stage I couldn't walk. But when I heard it worded like that, so simply and so matter of fact, I just thought what a big risk 
is that to place all of our happiness and future joy on this one very specific thing that we probably won't get. And so it was in that moment that I decided I wanted to be okay whether or not my body got any better physically. And that's when I made the choice to focus on the emotional and mental healing rather than just the physical recovery because I didn't want the reason that I was happy to be because I was walking because obviously there's a million other things in life that can go wrong even if I did get back on my feet. So I wanted to make sure that I was okay without any outside influences like that. People who live with disabilities often talk about the fact that it's not their body or existence that is disabling, but the world that they live in, the society Mm -hmm. around them, you know, a society that has steps, not ramps to get on a bus or um, makes assumptions and discriminates in the workplace. You sort of have had this extraordinary experience of becoming disabled and losing the ability to walk and then regaining it. Mm -hmm. What did that teach you about that question of discrimination and and that sort of social model of disability? Yeah, I realised that people treated me and looked at me very differently when I was in a wheelchair versus when I was walking and in different ways. So the first way I noticed was that people when I was in my wheelchair were inherently kinder, which sounds like a lovely thing at first. And I, I felt like I really needed that at first because things were so difficult. So I really appreciated people's generosity and patience with me. But then I went on and I was actually completely fine, but I was still using a wheelchair. Mm. I realized that sometimes people's kindness was actually just pity and people were being going above and beyond to be kind because they assumed that my life sucked and that I needed kindness in that way. Yeah. Um, And then another thing I noticed is that when I did get back up on my feet and started walking again, suddenly people viewed me as more inspiring or stronger. And I know everything's so well intended that people say, but I really didn't like that because I have um, so many friends who are both paraplegics and quadriplegics who are still living in wheelchairs. And to suggest that it was because I was inspiring or strong or resilient or determined or positive to suggest that any of those things the reason that I got up and walking again is just belittling their journey so much and just suggesting that they aren't trying hard enough, which is just yeah. not the case. It's just a matter of the, the way that my spinal cord was injured enabled it to heal in a way that theirs hasn't. And so I just, I just found that interesting. Oh, and an, another thing that I noticed was I was unable to work in the beginning few years. People would say, oh, you're so lucky you get to stay in bed all day. Oh, even when <gasps> I was in a wheelchair, you're so lucky you don't have to walk around. Like you get to sit down. It's like, oh my gosh. Okay, yeah. Or people would call me lazy. It would go one or the other. And in a in a society that very much values like the hustle and constantly achieving, yeah, it was very interesting to notice that I was now labeled lazy for dealing with something that was very much hard work. Wow. Yeah, lots of differences that I noticed.
we've had Tara Moss on the podcast previously, who um, is an Australian author who now lives in Canada, who experiences a number of conditions, including intense chronic pain. That means sometimes she uses a walking stick, sometimes she uses a wheelchair, and sometimes she doesn't. Yeah. And she has talked about how other people respond to that from a place of no knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> and how they tell her what she shouldn't shouldn't be doing when she lives this so has a ton of knowledge yeah oh yeah yeah I something I, I found really interesting was there was a stage there where I I could walk with crutches or I could use my wheelchair depending on how far I had to go and I remember going out to like bars or restaurants when I would use crutches and guys would come up to me and physically take them away from me oh. and I was like I actually can't stand up they'd be like you don't need them you're too pretty to need them like you don't really need I'm like what 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 <laughs> what does that have to do with anything and then I would fall over and it, it's just Gross. so how we we can perceive someone who's young and looks a certain way to not surely they mustn't be disabled because they don't fit their preconceived idea of what a disabled person looks like yeah and that you can tell by looking at someone yeah right? yeah. yeah fascinating yeah <laughs> how about your own experiences and perhaps your own stereotypes or internalized feelings about what disability was or should be in those sort of weeks where you were adjusting to a body that behaved differently. And I I recognize that that continued to evolve, but did you have to sort of deal with your own discrimination against yourself? Well, for me, I knew nothing about spinal cord injuries before, Mm. before my accident. So I naively assumed when I saw someone in a wheelchair that their legs couldn't work and that was that. Mm. And I was learning that there were so many other factors at play, which now seems obvious, but I just didn't know that at the time. And still I deal with those problems. I don't have any bladder or bowel control. I still can't feel from the waist down. All of these things that you can't see Mm. are still going on behind the scenes of most people with a spinal cord injury. And that's just something I had no idea about. And another thing which... I guess I had previously been oblivious and very naive to, which was the fact that people who were living with a disability, it's easy to see someone, for example, who's blind and using a walking stick or something, and to assume that that's the only problem that they're dealing with, their their disability, and that's all they need to focus on, when obviously in reality that person still needs to deal with all of the other elements of being human. And I realized that for myself when I was in hospital and seemingly my, what I was going through physically would have been the most difficult thing in my life. But realistically, I was going through a breakup at the same time. And that's where all of my emotion and energy went towards. That's what I was most upset about. And so it just made me realize that obviously people with living disability are going through all the other things that every other human is, as well as this thing on top of that, that they need to, that they need to constantly live with as well. What happened to you was such a, a random, awful occurrence. And I think we're taught not to be scared of things that are unlikely to happen. Mm. And yet for a lot of people, they are the things that scare us, right? The, you know, like people who have a fear of flying and that's because they're scared the plane will crash, even though that is a, a hugely remote possibility, right? Has your experience changed your feeling of sort of safety in the world? 
That's a great question. And it's interesting because as I said, initially, I wasn't scared. I, I should have been, but I didn't think about that at all. And it definitely has now, not even necessarily with with the obvious things that are seemingly dangerous, but with just anything, life seems so much more fragile to me now. Yeah. And I'm so aware that everything can change in a single moment, which is in some ways a positive way to live because I try not to take a second for granted and appreciate everything that I have in the moment that I have it, not just if I lose it. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's also like a trauma response because I'm constantly, yes, constantly, like if someone said they would be here and they're 10 minutes late, my, my brain goes, well, they're dead. There's no other response. Yeah. There's no other um, explanation besides they're dead. You know, you know what I mean? It, so I definitely am more fearful, but I didn't want it to stop me doing my favorite activities because realistically things can go wrong in the most basic, unexpected of ways anyway. Yeah. yeah. Do you think about who you would have become as you got older? I'm not talking about physically, but who you would have become as you got older emotionally and mentally if this hadn't happened? Yeah, I think about that and there's no way to know, right? Like I mm. I hope that I would have come to all the same perspective shifts and had developed these same attitude towards life regardless and just maybe at a slower pace throughout my 20s. But I have no idea. Um, I probably would be completely different because going through something like that so young, I just noticed so many ways that I view the world that are so different from people around me. Not so much anymore, but when I was in my early 20s, I felt like I couldn't relate to a lot of people. Um, yeah, so I probably would be completely different. Who knows in what way though? Honestly, it has just been such a joy talking to you, Emma. And I wanted to say thank you for putting your experiences into writing because I think there are so many people who uh, live with disability or come to disability later in life, and I'm one of them, who are desperate for stories of other people's experiences. And mm-hmm. it's such a gift to give that vulnerability um, as well as that positivity to, to others. So thank you for your, for your book and thanks for being my guest today. Oh, thank you so much. It was great talking to you. That's it for my conversation with Emma Carey. Emma is, of course, a newly minted author. Her book, The Girl Who Fell From The Sky, is available now at all the good bookstores and probably the bad ones too. You can order it online at Booktopia and I highly recommend that you do. Stick around. The weekend list is on its way. It is weekend list time. Bron is here and we have got all sorts of exciting stuff to recommend for you this weekend. Bron, over to you. I'm going to give you the honours of going first. So my first one is Dairy Girls on Netflix. The third and final season just came out um, not long ago. I don't know if you've seen it. It's about a group of teenagers living in Derry, uh, Northern Ireland, during the kind of tail end of the Troubles that were happening in the late 1990s, where there was conflict between Catholics and Protestants. But it is a comedy. It's hilarious. There's so many good, like, laugh-out-loud moments. And it also just touches on what life was like living in Derry kind of during all that turmoil towards the end of the Troubles. And there's some really, like, sombre moments mixed in with what is mostly a light-hearted TV show. I watched all of the third season in one day, so it is very, very bingeable. Sweet sovereign Jesus, it's the morning already. What are we going to do? Well, maybe we could start with Cam and the f*** down. Cam down? 
We're still on William of Orange, Michelle. We haven't so much looked at the famine. We've got the gist. They ran out of spots. Everyone was raging. That sounds really good. You have totally sold me on that one. <laughs> I am going to recommend something quite different, folks, and that is a new cookbook. Previously on the weekend briefing, we have talked to cookbook author Alice Zaslavsky. Her new book is called The Joy of Better Cooking, and it's real good. It's really, really good. The whole idea of the book is about looking for new skills and new things you can do in the kitchen, but at the same time recognising that we're all going to mess up. And so she has all these notes on what to do if you make a mistake and what you can learn for next time along the way and how to save meals if you've got it wrong. And I am very much into that. I am going to particularly recommend the recipe for fried green falafels. She learnt this recipe from a woman called Emmy in Egypt who Alice was visiting in Cairo and apparently she says they are the best falafels in the world. I am not enough of a global falafel connoisseur to confirm that but I can confirm that I have made them and they are really, really good. One of the other recipes I've already tried and loved is the Lady Marmalade Melting Moments. It's something about the tanginess of the marmalade. It kind of sits really nicely with the the sweetness of the biscuit and the filling. So it's not like that overwhelming sugar, sugar, sugar feeling. Oh my God. Yum. That sounds delicious. Uh, my next one is also uh, another Netflix one for me. Um, the Redeem Team. It's a sports documentary. It only goes for an hour and a half. I've kind of mentioned this before on the show. I'm not really the biggest sporting fan, but if they deliver it to me in a documentary form, I feel like Mm -hmm. I just go all in. It's about the USA men's basketball team. They had this really shocking performance at the 2004 uh, Olympics in Athens, where usually they would, the USA men's team would be dominating uh, basketball at the Olympics for years. They went horribly (laughs) in 2004. So it's all about how they're trying to bring the USA men's team of the basketball, you know, back into redemption during the 2008 Beijing games. So it kind of features uh, the players from that time, including LeBron James, uh, Dwayne Wade. They also, because this was filmed recently, but they also have um, some footage from Kobe Bryant, who was also part of that team, who um, tragically passed away a couple of years ago. But they included some footage from previous interviews with him as well. So it was such a fascinating documentary. And even if you're not a sports fan, I feel like people would really enjoy this. Everybody's like, we can never have this feeling ever again. We had to figure out how to become a team. I was nervous. A lot of them were not known as great team players. I had a lot of concerns. That's why we recruited Kobe Bryant. That sounds great. I love how into a sports doco you are for someone who's not a massive, not a massive <laughs> sports fan. My final recommendation is The Dropout, which you can watch at the moment on Disney Plus in Australia. It is a fairly wild story. It's based on a podcast of the same name and it's the story of Elizabeth Holmes who was a woman who was a Stanford student and she convinced her parents to help her drop out of school and start a blood testing company when she was still a teenager. So the idea was that she would find a way to be able to do a whole lot of blood tests at home for people and they could test themselves for all sorts of diseases or problems or conditions in their own home. Uh, So incredible, like life-changing technology. And she founded this company, um, Theranos, and it had this meteoric rise. Small problem was, Bron, was that none of the technology actually worked. (laughs) 
the fact that I am giggling is kind of unfair and I think uh, when you think about how many people were impacted by this story in real life, obviously this is a dramatised version and Amanda Seyfried plays Elizabeth Holmes and does a really, really good job, I think. I have no idea if it's particularly accurate having not met Elizabeth Holmes but she is very, very convincing. And there's a whole lot to this story that does seem a bit too impossible to be true but there are multiple whistleblowers and first-hand reports that do speak to the sense of fashion of Holmes, the nature of her voice, what she loved to drink, the way she kind of uh, engaged with her staff and showed herself to the world um, that suggests that it is a pretty accurate portrayal. I am going on a deep dive now. I am searching all things Elizabeth Holmes. I think I'm a little bit late to this party, but if you too are late in this world of too many things to stream, I highly recommend you get on the get on this train. What if you could test your blood in your own home? And what if it wasn't a whole vial, but just a drop? That's it for today's weekend briefing. Thank you so much for being our guests. If you want to make sure that you never miss an episode, the best thing to do is to download the listener app and within that app you can follow the briefing and we'll give you a little nudge every time there's a new episode or you can get the briefing and the weekend briefing wherever you get your podcasts. You can just subscribe or follow within that app. While you're there... Why not give us a lovely five-star rating and review? That will help other people to find the podcast as well as give Bron and I all the warm fuzzies. We will be back Monday morning bright and early where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.